by learning our way in was we had to melt that frozen middle. We had to get those people out of the picket line and into the parade, the design thinking parade. So they would become ambassadors instead of like the white blood cells that would attack. Welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Thank you for joining us on our journey to better understand innovation and product strategy. My name is Jan Vermont, and joining me as always are my two co-hosts, Jonathan Edwards and Scott Burleson. In today's episode, we welcome Gretchen Goff. Gretchen is on a mission to make design thinking accessible to everyone. She's the founder and CEO of the DT Live Lab that helps companies become customer-centric at scale through teaching and training teams on human-centered approaches to innovation and customer experience. She has 20 plus years of experience in innovation in many, many industries, uh, consumer goods, finance, healthcare, and many more. She was also the executive director of the innovation initiative of the Ohio State University's Fisher College um, of Business and is a member of the Fast Company. So in very short, there's a ton of experience that we need to dive in. So uh, let's get to it. Gretchen, welcome to the Product Quest podcast. Hey, hi, guys. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's let's jump in. We already touched upon it but kind of before we started the recording. Emp- uh, empathy, uh, right? In all that you write, in uh, basically everything that I see on the website, also on the DT Lab website, um, you often emphasize the power of empathy. So, so can you give us a little bit of a picture? What is it? Why does it matter in a business context? So, yeah, what's the role yeah. or the power of empathy? Yeah, so I grew up, my father's a physicist and he has probably 70 different patents, but it was always a discovery in a lab. And so I always grew up being like, but who needs it? What's the problem it solves? And I think that's the big switch that we all made in the last couple of decades is let's start with what people need and develop solutions for it. And to me, empathy is the way you crack that code. But just as we're realizing how important empathy is, it's also at record low levels. It's declined significantly. And at the same time, I feel like companies know more about their customers as in data, and they know less about them as humans. Hmm. There's a small group of people on the front line and those in market research that talk directly to customers and everybody else is at least, you know, one, two or three steps removed. So how do we get people to have empathy for the very customers? Our whole business was created to serve when they're never hearing from them. I really like this. I especially like this idea of, I think that's very true that kind of the data is piling up and data is about humans in some way or another. But is it kind of human data? It's that it's, there is a difference between those 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 two things. So so, do you do you think we should balance kind of being data driven and empathy, or how do these two two relate? Yeah, they're they're clearly they're complementary. But you know, if I were to point to something that I think is an area for us to build a tighter bridge, it's think of personas where we'll mine a lot of data and research and sort of cobble together an amalgamation of that into like a faux person, you know, Patty who does this and is this age or whatever. But it's like, if you ask people to describe what a cat is like, does anybody here have a cat? I had, I did. Yeah. (laughs) 
Okay. Nope. So somebody who doesn't have a cat, you just how would you describe a cat? What are they like? If I was an alien from another planet. Oh. Furry, agile, um, two ears, a tail, four Apathetic. legs. Uh, yeah, mean, <laughs> arrogant, <laughs> cynical, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And now, Jan, you said you used to have a cat. It, well, she was my best friend at some point in time. That was the most beautiful little creature. We, I mean, she she came to us and was lost all alone, and then we kind of picked her up. So it's a kind of a different. <laughs> I have a very had a very strong connection to that cat. I personally had a similar situation. I'm not a big fan of cats. I wound up stealing my neighbor's cat inadvertently, thinking I it think was. I think we did stray. something like that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think cats sometimes have a way of choosing their owners. <laughs> well, that must have been my charm. My I don't know what. <laughs> yes, clearly, but to me that shows the power of individual stories versus what data can tell us. And clearly data gets us, you know, into territories where we can understand in broad strokes who's buying products for cats and what they think. But to get beyond those stereotypes where they're standoffish, but they're, you know, Nadio Comaneci level gymnasts who can leap to high places um, and really get into what people, cat owners think, that's a much more powerful way to prime the pump for a design thinking sprint. Yeah for yeah. us to just bring in like second, third hand information. I absolutely agree. So, but what, what would you say to somebody who says, well, well, I, I just naturally, I can't, I, this is not my thing. I'm a numbers person or like, can everybody empathize? Is that something you can, can learn? Yeah, I think it is learnable. Um, I think it really helps for people to have an empathy experience. It's very eye opening. We okay. actually take a half an hour out of our teaching sprints to do an exercise to, with different Myers-Briggs types and their affinity for innovation. So some people are project manager types, others are, what is the data telling us about an opportunity in the market? You've got your classic ideators, and then we have people that are good at synthesizing things into decisions. And so we kind of call that out, that all four of those are needed because innovation is a team sport. We talk about natural tensions that can arise between the person that wants to do another round and another round of ideation and the person who's <laughs> looking at the chart saying, starting to hyperventilate and saying, but but we're past, we're over, we're, that, that needed to be done yesterday. And yeah. I think that's that sort of, me. <laughs> right? And then we do an exercise where everybody has to role play being the board of directors for an early stage startup like Warby Parker and they've got to look at the big order that would blow up their company and play a role of a type that's different from them. And mm -hmm. so it's their first introduction to empathy and they come away with a healthy respect for their peers' talents and how hard it is, you know, what it feels like to walk in someone else's shoes. So we have sort of built in some things like that, sneaky ways to sort of make a team more democratized because um, it's not just titles. I think you have to democratize types too. Could you, could you maybe outline the, um, the the types in the Myers-Briggs for myself right, so, and maybe for the audience? Sure. So we try to keep it simple because we're, we're trying to get a lot done quickly. So we just focus on two of the letters. So your classic NP, which is your ideator, um, you know, your uh, SP tends to be the analyst. 
and they can struggle in innovation because when you're doing something new, a lot of times you can't get to 100% data. You've got to say that's a hypothesis and we'll test our way in. Um, an NJ is sort of that classic, synthesizes things very quickly and goes from you know, ground zero to decision quickly, but sometimes loses everyone else. And then you're, if you're an NP, really your best friend is the N, uh, let's see, the SP. Sorry, the SJ is the NP's best because while you're thinking of ideas and uncharted territory, they're the person that's going to say, okay, now how would we get this new product into a can and on a shelf? What would it take? Because our, our right now our manufacturing is set up for bottles, not cans. And we have relationships here, but not there. So really the whole talent pool is needed. But to answer your question, that's that's a little bit on how we look at. And I think giving people just a glimpse of it can be enough for them to, to nod their head and be like, oh, yeah, okay, so there's something here. Is that something you kind of consciously, are you, are you kind of choosing the teams that, or do you just find the teams the way they are? Because I can imagine that in certain industries, kind of certain industries probably attract certain kinds of, or there's more of a certain kind of type in a certain industry than in a, in a different. So how can you manage that? Yeah, I don't think you need to manage it. It You let it be yeah. organic and inevitably you've got probably three of the types represented in a group of 20, 25 people. Um, and they'll be painfully aware of the type they're missing by the time the exercise is yeah. over. I've had people tell me they're going to change their hiring practices wow, <laughs> after this imagine. exercise and look for, uh, you know, some different types where they were, you know, underweighted. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one question that I have, and I think we touched upon it a little bit there, but, but who do we need to emphasize with? Like, uh, is that just a general rule of thumb? Everyone is it the customer. Like, where do you see kind of do, where do we have empathy gaps at the moment? As let's say, yeah, yeah, I you know for us, I think what we realized is if you let people empathize with customers in a practice project, then they learn how to empathize with with a customer, and they're able to kind of lift and shift. So then when you say, okay, now let's talk about a new customer you don't serve, someone working in the gig economy, they're not, you don't currently have products and services set up for them. So we're going to go talk to them and understand firsthand what their needs are. And then we're going to rethink how we could take our core capabilities and reimagine them into new solutions mm -hmm. that would meet the needs. When you, one of our core tenants is sort of this practice pancake in our house, the first the pancake, practice pancake, practice pancake. Oh, that already sounds lovely. Okay. <laughs> so, so in our house, the first pancake goes to the dogs, you know, okay. it's the oil, it's imperfect. <laughs> and so we like to do a project in a different category than the one that if you've spent your 20 year career in financial services, you think, you know, a lot yeah. and, and your expertise can be your hindrance because yeah. you know the way things need to be. So when we take people into a practice project in health and wellness, say, here's a $43 billion market with expert recommendation and free samples, but only 25% compliance. What's going on here? Let's pretend we've got VC funding and go in here and disrupt it. People yeah. you know, get to use design thinking, they get to use empathy 
and they get to talk to people live, which I think is the key to igniting empathy. Yeah. It's to have an experience and interact with the human. And then they come away, not just understanding what design thinking is, but I think understanding their own ability to do design thinking. Yeah. I really liked it, the idea of having this empathy kind of experience. You have to experience this. And there is, there's kind of something on your website. And I think that's it, it, it's on, you emphasize live as well, kind of as a second pillar. And I think it's, it's, it's a good time to get into there. And on your website, it says, well, how, how, how can you delight customers you've how well can you delight customers you've never met? Yeah. Yeah. And it's such a like a very powerful question. I think you're bang on there. Like how how should that even work? How can you provide some how can you create something that excites them if you if you have never ever? And very often that's unfortunately the case. So you're stressing kind of the power of empathy, but also also this power of 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 life. So can you go a little bit more into that and what that entails? Yeah, it's sort of our origin story and why, you know, I started the company and I put live in the name of the company because yeah. after doing design thinking, both, you know, in that role and then on the consulting side for many years, my clients started asking me if I could teach them how to do what I do. And it led to a role um, heading up innovation at the business school and teaching it in the MBA program. And I would tell the students, like, I want you to be able to step up and lead in two situations you'll face in your career. And one is, hey, we're going to do an ideation session. We got, you know, pizza and post-it notes and it's going to be great. And the other is, here's an idea that came out of an ideation session. Should the company take it forward into a product or business? And I felt mm -hmm. that it's really impossible to get to interesting in solutions without talking to the customers. But yet, the only sort of options there were is you can send someone for a week to an excellent program, but it's $20,000. So yeah. not many people are going to get to do that. Or you can do something asynchronous, uh, you know, on LinkedIn or Coursera, which is very uninspiring because there's no live to it. Yeah. So we set out to fill that spot in the middle and we created these live practice sprints. Each one we've already recruited the people to be interviewed. And they all sort of start with going from the business briefing to, okay, in half an hour, we're going to talk to people in this health and wellness category. You're going to, to learn what they do and what they don't do and what they use and what they abuse. And, you know, and from that, that firsthand, like I say, stories are the currency of empathy. People oh, not only, yeah. they not only have a better understanding of what people need, it ignites something in you. Like, I passionately want to make the world better when I hear an 85 year old tell me how they struggle with something, you know, I'm very motivated and there's science that shows when our empathy is awakened, we're much more creative in coming up with solutions. Yeah. I think there's very little to replace also just the concreteness of hearing the story. I mean, it's, it's, it's once, I think we have a, very often in a business context, we have a tendency to go to go abstract, to generalize, to kind of extrapolate. But but people in life is concrete. It's concrete stuff that kind of is 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 is, is where 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 the music plays, as as it were, where where it really happens, and where you make the decision. And integrating that in, in into your sessions, I really like this. But but it sounds scary. Like in half an hour, we're going to talk to people. Uh, some some of some of those participants probably get a little bit scared, or am I am I misinterpreting well, this? <laughs> I love what you said about the music. Um, so maybe to use that analogy, which is my favorite second yeah. language, 
just as a matter of words and analogy, is if you had only learned to play an instrument, um, you know, on paper, you would eventually need to pick that instrument up and join an orchestra and play, but you wouldn't want your debut to be at Carnegie Hall. You would want, right, the 2,000 plus hours of practice. And so I think that's the space. We're trying to coalesce that 2,000 hours down to just three to say, let's have let's have a very coached opportunity to play your instrument in a band and all sort of figure out how to turn into, you know, a well-forming orchestra together. And, and that's what I think the power is of live. Yeah. I, so there's three hours. I know somewhere in there is customer interaction. Can you kind of walk us yeah. through these three hours? What, what is the concept behind that? And is, and yeah. 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 So, I mean, they started out being three days and every, everybody wants to do everything faster, shorter. Um, and then when COVID happened, we flipped everything to the online world. Instead of in person, it actually offered an opportunity for efficiency. And so we do ours, I say, amazing race style, where we've sort of prescriptively Mm -hmm. laid out steps, but we acknowledge that this is much more cooking than baking. You know, baking (laughs) is a precise set that results in the bread, whereas design thinking is a fluid, nonlinear process and way of thinking and working. Yeah. And so really setting a little bit of improvisation in there or I don't know like okay so so we try to give people in these practice projects some of the pieces already done so they have for example they have a a sample discussion guide that they have the opportunity to tweak and in that so they're we're giving them some some pieces of it where they're so that the trade-off is while they're not doing all of it they are getting to experience it nose to tail okay. so that they can see the bigger picture, feel, you know, I always said there's two ways to teach. One is I make you feel really dumb and you think I'm really smart and you think I got to keep her around because she's so yeah. brilliant. I want the other way. I want to take what seems up here and bring it down here so that people go, wow, this connects to ways I already thought about things instinctively. I can see the parallels and what I was doing, but now I have kind of a nomenclature and a, and a shared experience. So like when everyone's seen the movie and you call out a line from the movie, like the one we like to use is ma the meatloaf. Um, <laughs> if you guys are a fan of the movie Step Brothers, and it, then everyone having had that shared experience is just fast forwarded to a place together. Okay. That's so I've, uh, I think that was for a long time, kind of a dream of, of mine doing that from our approach, but I would never, ever manage to do this, kind of bring it into three hours. And, and that must have been a, a, a huge work. I mean, how do you get it into, into such a short amount of time? That's, that's, a, that's quite a challenge there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like anything you do. We've been working on these for almost 10 years. So we've had lots of, you know, thousands and thousands of people have gone through them each time we've tried to test and learn run a different experiment, learn, you know, just continually polish. And now where we started out, our flagship program is still our most popular, but we now have eight different sprints. And especially as innovation started out, like the one I mentioned is a disruptor sprint, but now we've got little eye innovation where we're looking for friction points in a process. We've got CX, 
whether you're on the front line or whether you're, you know, creating digital transformation and still needing to think about the human mm. that's going to experience this digital solution and how they factor in. So yeah. I don't know. We've just been having a lot of fun. I can say that the time's <laughs> gone really fast. So these eight <laughs> different sprints, these are like templates based on a particular business challenge that something seems common about it that okay this number three works for these business objectives is that the idea yeah so it was sort of like when i was teaching in the b school when i'd create a new course you'd start with like what are the learning objectives what do i you know i always said like i was terrible the first time i taught because i approached it as a consultant paid to give the answer that's not how, not how anybody mm. wants to learn. We need to yeah. like ask the question that makes someone think that makes them yeah. realize something. And this just takes it one step further is I'm designing an experience that will cause someone to have an epiphany and that will make them realize. And so, for example, people always come in. If I told you what the, you know, the category was of a sprint, you'd come in with an idea because nobody wants to be unprepared. But what happens then when you start to interview a stranger is they go, oh, yeah, no, I don't want that. <laughs> and people are like, oh, uh oh, <laughs> I better really pay attention to this designing thing because I got to figure out something they really do need. And yeah. give a couple examples of those. I find, I find that's very interesting. Like you've got these eight templates. Uh, well, for, I, I have two questions. The one, first one is, did it begin as one? And you sort of said, oh, wait a minute, here's different situations that maybe you can sort of we can customize. That's one question. And the other thing, well, maybe I'll just start with that. Yeah. It began as one. Um, and from it, yes, we actually were fortunate. We've had one client since the beginning. We still work with them and we've been able to co-create with them. And at one point we said, geez, why don't we have these customers come back for the prototyping phase so we can learn again yeah. from them. Yeah. So some of it just happened organically. Um, but along the way, I think, you know, a lot changes over eight to 10 years. And we saw what our clients were working on change from just being, bring me the big disruptive innovation to help me find these little friction points that irritate people to how do I deliver delight? You know, how do I architect moments of delight? How do I see a moment where a UX person might be told, build, build this? Build me a, a pet health claim tracker and have it look like the Domino's pizza tracker to pull that back and be like, this is a huge moment that matters. Like you are going to win or lose your customer for life in this first claim experience because they already think you're going to potentially, you know, throw their case out on the fine print. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I'm either going to be the hero that made a good decision or I'm going to be the person that wasted some significant money, right? Those are all the emotional stakes that are happening in that moment. So I think it just sort of evolved and we tend to consult with our clients and solve their problems and hear more problems. And I'm mentioned I'm an NP. So creating more experiences is right <laughs> in my hobby house. <laughs> I, I'm an NP too. They, um, but it's funny. I don't know if decades of working have beat me down <laughs> of, uh, uh, because I find myself asking, I find myself wondering a very J question, which is, you know, 
Well, it sounds fun and wonderful. We're coming up with ideas, but what what are the outputs of these sessions? Again, I'm an NPR. Yeah. I really am. I love to yeah. come up with ideas, but at some point, I had to make a living, and it, you know, mm-hmm. I had to develop some other skills. Right. Well, you guys know um, there's so much value in an outside-in perspective for companies. You can look at the way they do things yeah. and not be afraid to say, "Well, why do you do that? That seems like a lot of friction yeah. for the customer, right?" And they're like, "Well, you have to do it that way." You right. say, really? I don't know that you do because in these other categories, people yeah. have gotten rid of that, right? But at the same time, if you're too far out, then you come back with ideas and and I call it dead plant syndrome. You know, you come back to check on the billion dollar idea you gave the client and it's over there in the corner like a dead plant. And you're like, well, what happened? And they didn't know, you know, it didn't quite fit. It didn't match an internal process. It didn't finance killed it. You know, all these, these things happened and it went nowhere. And so I think, you know, to some of it, all of our goal is how do we get in there and, and help our clients really be more successful. And a big piece of that is what's coming out of these sprints. Yeah. We've found that where we started training people and then leading them in sprints of their own. And then we would have taught them to fish and say, yeah. go forth on your own, that um, they've started coming up with viable ideas, even during these practice sprints. And, and we will purposefully keep introducing new, you know, new customer types or new trends to them in new projects. And, and now a lot of times they adopt them as innovation territories. So mm-hmm. um, that's how our fees, I think are justified and why people keep us around is, not just because we're training an army of people to think and work differently, but because they're seeing things come out of it. Well, what's that? What's that deliver? I'm, I'm telling you, I feel like I'm I'm speaking on behalf of some other product manager that's not project manager that's not <laughs> me. Uh, but what so what's the deliverable? What comes out? It's like here's what we here's what we've done. Yeah. Well, so one of the things we added more recently is called an invention session, and it recognizes that an idea on a post-it on a board doesn't translate into a lot of business value. And so how do we get ideators to begin to identify what are the hypotheses behind the illities, desirable, feasible, and viable? And what are some quick tests that I can do to test my way into these? And that for us has been a good bridge to getting across the finish line, right? So less about, cause you're going to pivot, but, how do you inform that more before you spend a lot of resources? Now, I like to tell people, I want you at the end of this, if you got on the elevator with the head of that business unit to be able to present in an eight floor ride, your unmet need, your idea, and the hypothesis and test you did as a compelling case, and then ask for a 30 minute meeting Instead of just getting on the elevator and saying, Jan, I got this great idea. You know, I was working on this pet health tracker, but I came up with this idea for a pet HSA. And I think you guys should do it. Jan's like, I'm running a business. I don't need your half-formed idea with no evidence of whether anybody really wants it. Right. But if I get on the elevator with him and say, there's a reason there's only 4% market share here. And this is what we found. We developed this and we ran it through, da-da-da, and it scored and boom, boom, boom. Can I get 30 minutes to talk with you more about whether there's something here? It puts, that's, we're all trying to get our clients promoted, right? That's our, 
Yeah. Makes sense. That's all right. Success. Yeah. You gotta get that verification, that some kind of evidence in favor of the concept, or maybe it was in, not in favor of it, and you learned, you pivoted. Which is just as valuable, right? Sure. Right? Like not I used fun. to say, but, but I, you know, I would say like, now the kids are going to college. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work very well at the university, yeah. but all you, you've got to let go of the, the, the love you have for your idea and you can't take them all forward anyway. There's not time. So really it's like, let's pick the strongest, most desirable, feasible, viable one, the, or the one that best, best answers the business strategy that's needed. And let's take that one forward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's, I mean, try to fall less in love with your own idea I think if we can solve only that for 60%, then we're going to be a huge way. I feel like in my kind of line of work, that is, that is, that's for me, the strongest kind of barrier to, to adoption of our, our, our findings is, well, but I once said, okay, I'll describe a situation. I once had a situation working with the clients. Of course, I'm never going to name who it is, but there was kind of a, a, a service to be used that you could uh, um, get you from one point to another. And kind of the question was, well, is that something for the day or is it rather for the night kind of evening or, or night kind of thing? It doesn't really matter on the details. And all the evidence we gathered pointed to the night. Like that's it, different ways. Everything pointed to focus around the evening and night and blah, blah, blah. And I remember having a meeting and I think it was an engineer at, anyway, it doesn't matter who it was, but somebody in the meeting said, but I want to build something for the day. <laughs> so like, he had an idea this happens exactly more often than... to build. everything points into a different direction but then and then i really didn't i didn't really know how to like just stop mm. i don't know how to react so so yeah. what are some kind of tips and tricks to get yeah. people at least to have a little bit of a step back from from i mean i think if it's fair to, to to be in love to some degree with your idea probably there is something to it but how do you get them just a step a little bit of a step back from, from before there. she answers i have to share one little thing i i did an ideation session with a client once and we we, we put them on this big impact versus effort thing and yeah. all right which one should we do and they immediately picked the one that had the lowest impact and the highest effort and i'm like <laughs> i don't think you guys understand what this for you literally right. picked the worst <laughs> thing on here anyway so I'm, I'm reminded of that by yon scenario <laughs> well I'm glad we're talking about this because these are the intangibles, right? That are, yeah. that are need to be spoken about more because we can talk about how it's supposed to work, but these are the ways that it <laughs> works. And it ties into that being human, right? That's the, it's natural to want to do things the way you want to do things. But so one, I would invite you guys, this is what we do. This is why we do practice projects first so that mm, yeah. people drink the Kool-Aid and they yeah. they have yeah. some excitement and shared experience around the process. So then later, when the stakes are high, yeah, that you're not facing some of these barriers, right? Mm -hmm. You you've gotten them excited. And Jan and I were talking. I think it was the uh, the innovators conference. Yeah. Uh, it was actually my client that called it this. She said, "You're melting the frozen middle." Yeah. And so it's really you've got you've got your experts that know. CX design thinking and UX. And then you've got this big middle part of the organization where yeah. a lot of things fall off like this. An engineer who says, 
but they're not on board or, or someone in finance who's trying to put an ROI, you know, like I had in healthcare, I had a CFO to say to me, any innovation idea better show better ROI than me buying another MRI machine. I was like, well, that's great for a while until, until you don't need any more MRI machines. And then, (laughs) then where does it come from? So um, I, one of the things that we found just sort of by learning our way in was we had to melt that frozen middle. We had to get those people out of the picket line and into the parade, the design thinking parade. So they would become ambassadors instead of like the white blood cells that would attack. You're having fun, you cool kids over there and you have this idea, but now you bring me in, boy, I'm gonna put the brakes on this, you know? Yeah. And so we found the magic number is 5%. You don't have to train and engage everyone in the frozen metal. How you melt a sheet of ice is with rock salt. And so sort of the same thing. We would sprinkle in our sessions, people across this frozen metal, the engineers, the finance, the, you know, even the attorneys, they're all, they all potentially can throw the flag on the play. And so there's like yeah. five fours all in one long winded sentence, but that's where we found, you know, it, we really got a lot of headway. Just, just, just maybe just to, to repeat this for me, I think that for me is uh, one of the biggest challenges to solve. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it, it, it's amazing how, what are, what are your, process there was kind of on how you how you go about this so i think you can it, it's accessible i think if if you google uh gretchen golf melting uh, no 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 melting the middle innovators yeah. you will find it it's i will put it in the description of the of the thing it's it's worth a read but this kind of scaling of these of that kind of working is for me the biggest one of the biggest challenges that I, that i don't really have a good answer for so you're saying there is you, you train five percent of people, but is that so? It's that five percent kind of across the organization, and how do you how do you manage that process basically of scaling scaling it through the organization? If you like, well, you have to make it a scalable and affordable experience, and I feel like that's that's the you know code that we cracked. Um, we were featured in Fast Company recently, and you know it entails the power of live and our other of our seven tenants for getting people engaged. I like to say many need to know a little. So we're not creating design thinking consultants. We're creating people that have had an epiphany about a new way to think and work who feel connected to the organization's efforts. And when when they intersect with a project or with something say that you've developed for a client and they intersect with that, they're the engineer, they you get a different reaction from them. Yeah. 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 We love to part. I mean, we, we work with clients directly, but we also work with consultancies and agencies as a supplement to the live work they're doing. Just in riding along in the sidecar to say, before you run a big project and then face these obstacles, have us soften it up, you know, and, and give people this experience and this new kind of vocabulary and, yeah. You know, way of working so that then then when you follow in, you bring you bring the solution in there like, okay, I understand and feel like I could help, you know, then you go back and it's not a dead plant, it's a sequoia. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I totally see this. We we I mean we're more on this, let's say, data data side, or a lot of our work is is isn't that or can have that kind of results. And 
that's it's very difficult to kind of activate this. Uh, you bring in results, and we we in the past we quite often had this experience where it just you bring results, you bring insights. Client says, "Well, thank you very much." You yeah. check in three months later, and then it's somewhere in a folder, or well, six months, well, three months. I hope we kind of we manage to keep it alive. But six months, twelve months later, it's somewhere in a folder, and it's just. Mm-hmm. And then we learned, or, or are still learning, and I think that's where we're learning the most at the moment is how can you find ways of of creating kinds of experiences of working with the stuff of really kind of immersing the people because that's when it clicks. I don't think it's yeah. out of the world has changed or it has never been that way or whatever, but it's not it's not the slide on the wall that's going to make the change. It's not somehow it's not there where where it happens. Well, and I think we're finding that it's co-creation, right? Because when you co-create and I, your client feels they generated, they had a hand in generating that. Um, They had a hand in selecting which of the ideas has potential. They had a hand in what are the hypotheses and what the next steps could be. You're in a really different place. And I know exactly where you guys are coming from because in my time on the consulting side, this was kind of why why I wound up where I am now. Because I saw this same thing where they would ask for something, you would deliver that and more, and and then just internal resources and intangibles that would languish. Yeah. Sadly. Yeah. Yeah, I have this moment um, sometimes (laughs) as a consultant where with a with a client, I feel like I when I understand their business, I like wow, I recognize this pattern so clearly. And what I found doesn't work is to share that with them. I recognize it so clearly, <laughs> uh-huh. and like this is this is exactly this other thing will work so well because it's it's back to your teaching point. If I just give them the answer, it's they're like, well, who are you? I mean, it just it just. I've learned I need to sit on that and I could be, of course I could be wrong also, but it's, that's always a challenge because I've just, I've sort of found myself like mentally, I've just inserted myself in their team. Like, all right, we're going to do this. We're going to do this, but it's, but they're not there. I'm like, but, and again, I could even, I could be wrong. That's entirely possible, but at least right or wrong. I feel like I had this clarity about, man, this thing you guys want to do. I've seen this exact pattern and I know what to do, but I, um, I don't, is that something you've seen? I don't really have a question other than is that something that you've seen as well or experienced or what advice do you have for somebody uh, who's experienced a consultant who's experiencing that, that this, this, this insight they feel like they have? Well, I think it, to me, it gets into the co-creating, you know, like yeah. how do you lead them to have that insight mm. about it? And sometimes the way that people have the insight is, is the customers do the job for you. Mm. Yeah. Right. You know, so, so you, people come up with these ideas, these prototypes, we bring the people they interviewed back in and they'll look at them and they'll say, nah, that's not what I want, you know, because of A, B and C. And so they just did that for you. Yeah. You didn't have to say, gee, I not sure you hit the mark with that. Right. But also I think it's, um, like what we'll see is there's, you've hedged your bets. There's multiple ideas there. So, um, and we're always, people say we're facilitators, but I feel like we're equally innovators and instigators. So, you know, during a session, if I see a team that seems not to be thinking in novel ways or to be stuck on the first idea they had, I'll put something in there. I'll 
push or prompt or, you know, disrupt them. Yeah. And drop something in that, you know, team. Like, so how do you think Dyson would do this? You know, like, oh, well, okay. Well, they would, you know, probably do da da And then you, you bounce away into another team. And when you come back, they've, they have like done new things. Yeah. yeah. And who does the, um, in your process, who does the selection of the, uh, the clients? Is it usually you or the, your clients who find their clients? So do you mean like if we've got ABC company, who's picking exactly. the people to go through the, um, so our clients generally are the ones picking them. And sometimes it depends. Like one of the programs is more for people on the front line doing CX. So they're obviously recruiting mm. from a different pool. Mm. Uh, you know, I guess I should reverse that based on what their audiences are and what we know about their goals. We're picking the program that makes the most sense, but bottom line it's not open enrollment. We've considered doing open enrollment, but they're all um, filled completely by our customers. Yeah. yeah. So it's it's it, I I I want to touch upon one point, maybe go go a little bit deeper in this. I mean, we have talked about now for I don't know four or five minutes or so about about these three hours and design thinking as such. But but can you like? What does that look like in the sprints, or what is design thinking in, in kind of a la, a la Gretchen or DT live live lab? Is there a twisted? Is that kind of the more or less standard process? How do I have to imagine the the application of that kind of thinking or or working? Yeah, so I think when I mentioned we had eight different sprints, so that's part of it is because design thinking. So there's a lot to it, right? And there's a lot of nuance. That's where as practitioners, all of our decades of experience are things we draw on hmm. that each one is, is completely a unique path that you went on. So some of it is for how we use it is, you know, are we trying to get people, like we use the disruptive innovation sprint a lot of times to introduce design thinking because it's so dramatic when you say, Right. Look at this $43 billion space and look at all the potential. And by the way, our solutions won't entail any of the current capabilities. That's a good learning experience for people. But as we go closer in, then it might be, how do I get someone to recognize? So an incoming request, like I mentioned, the pet health claim tracker. How do I get somebody when I've received this request from a business unit and they don't want to fully utilize me? They just want to say, I know what I need and build it and, and make it do it. Yeah. Yeah. How do I work with my internal client to say, okay, I hear you now let's dig a little bit deeper in what you're trying to solve. And then how do I come back and make a case to you of, well, first of all, it's not going to be like a Domino's pizza tracker because there's a lot of emotional needs here. There's a person mm -hmm. in an emergency room situation, right? So how do I help them make that case? It's like, mm -hmm. You want to help a UX person not say, here's my design, but say, here's why. Yeah. Did this this way and this way and this way because the customer needs this. And also, while you're trying to maximize the value of this acquisition, we uncovered some other really important unmet needs mm -hmm. that are going on here and some interesting ways to solve them. So now, you know, I got it's the red dress, blue dress. I got. I asked you yeah. to make me a red dress and you made it, but you made it 
beautifully. And then you also said, and this would be another gorgeous gown too, wouldn't it? I'm like, oh, I want them all. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a lot, I think, the the very often what we're seeing now also in UX, and I think that's exactly what, what we should do is finding ways of how can they, I mean, now I'm kind of interpreting what we're saying, but how can we help them have more leverage and more more of a say in the whole organization? Because it's 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 the disconnect that we spoke to earlier about. I think it's those guys and people and, and, and that have the most contact, the most interaction with clients. And quite often, depends on the company, of course, but quite often it's not those with the most power. So how can we help them balance that? That Because it's it, there is power involved and that's just how things are. And sometimes it has a good reason. But how can we help them to, to have kind of more impact in the whole organization? I feel that's one of the missions as well. Is, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of times our programs might be funded out of a UX group, but yeah. what they do is it's it's not really to train the UX people. We're not going to help them know more about UX, but we're yeah. going to help them with these things that we're talking about. And so then we say, why don't you invite some of your business unit partners to join the yeah. practice sprint? And so that's where the magic happens because then the business unit person is like, oh, wow, I didn't really understand the potential that this person could bring to my business. Now I understand it better in a very non-threatening, embarrassing way and having had a lot of fun. And so then as they go forward, you find like they're inviting the UX people to the table earlier. They see their value in this, right? Like, hey, we just acquired a company and we're going to need to do some different things here. We'd like to have you guys come in with us and really understand like, what are going to be the important problems to solve to get I the most that's value. a great measure of success like a great measure of success like how early do they get somebody from ux <laughs> into a project is probably a good a good a good way to think about this and in your experience would you say the the, the people who let's say um are not listening to ux um mostly on the business side or are they the engineers? I mean, where do you see the most friction between UX and and the rest of the organization? I don't know if I could quantify where I see more. I think those are all, you know, everyone is working in a cross-functional team. And we sort of ask these teams to, we recruit a bunch of individual superstars and we throw them onto a team and we expect superstar performance from the team. But the reality is if you want a dream team, it doesn't have to be all individual superstars. It's how they work together as a team. You know, you look at how boring an all-stars game is. Everybody's, you know, basketball game, they're all just showing off their dunk shot. But if you, there are teams that have done amazing, great things because they've been elevated. And, and those are the times we all remember in our career. We look back on those times where we elevated, we did great work, we had great fun, we loved doing it. And there's a magic that happens there. And so I think some of it is like, how do you invite the engineers, the IT people, the the business unit partners, the product managers? How do you keep bringing more and more of those people in? And somebody has to host the party. It might be UX, sometimes it's marketing, sometimes it's CX, but somebody picks up the tab basically but, yeah. but then you start to see these rewards coming. People are happier yeah. with their work. You're retaining people more. You're getting better work out of. If you can create a dream team work environment, then you're going to wind up with the best 
results, the best, you know, the easiest recruiting. But if, if you got people grinding away, always feeling, you know, they're pushing a rock up a hill, then they're going to leave and go work somewhere else. The, the basketball metaphor works really well. Like, so you have like Latvia, like beat the U.S. team, uh, which is all NBA players, the best players in the world. But the Latvian players, I'm just making this is sort of arbitrary, but, you know, they play together. They know each other. They're uh, they play better together. So that's a sorry. That's yes. Metaphor yes. Works really well. Yes. Right. That's that's exactly it. It's like, you know, each other's you can almost read each other's minds, you know, and elevate each other yeah. and uh, I, uh, maybe just to dig in a bit more in in this this um kind of friction issue um for, for so as i understand your 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 point we need to get uh people to work together and co-create on on the the project so i would imagine you would get uh, someone from uh, different people from different sides of the the business to come together and and work on projects. I guess that's that's the way you'd approach it. Um, uh, is this, in your experience, do you think this is enough? Or I, I I'm wondering. So to go get to the point, what can a UX person do to to provide value? in the eyes of engineers because in my in my view i see this is often where the the the, the friction seems seems to be i've heard a lot of people talking about uh, okay for that forget uh, product managers we need product engineers now there's this whole trend of product engineers and uh, you know um, ux people having the longer the more to have a, a very technical background and I, I was wondering, what is it that UX people can do so that engineers actually say, hmm, oh, this really brings value to my work? What would right. be your advice on, on that? Well, to me, when when that a group like that works on a project together and they see, so for example, um, if you go through a project and we say in 30 minutes, you're going to be interviewing people. The engineer or anyone on the team might be like, oh, not me. I don't do that. And we say, no, everybody's everybody's going to do this. We're all the high likelihood of that happening. <laughs> yes. You're each going to have a seat in the interviewing. And there's I always say there's no downside. Like it's a practice project. There's nothing you can screw up here. And we're only going to know more afterwards than we knew at the start. And so then the engineer interviews someone and they're oftentimes very good at it. And what happens is they, you know, when we show people what a bad interview looks like and we model what a good interview looks like, we're not, we're not doing a survey. We're not badgering the witness, you know, we're, and we're, we like to take a lighthearted approach to this. This doesn't have to be a big serious thing. In fact, I think people's uptakes better when it is fun. Mm. So that's where you see the epiphany because whoever they are, when I, I'm talking to Jan, who's a potential user of my product, and they say, I don't want it in the morning, I want it in the evening. Then that engineer is hearing that firsthand and could even say, well, why is that? And when you get the why, it's very hard to say, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care about your why. I'm just going to build it so that you get it in the morning anyway, right? I have an 85-year-old telling me about why they take this medication in the evening, and it entails a whole personal story, I'm going to carry that forward. And 
probably be quite passionate to my fellow engineers if they then tell me, no, we're going to do it in the morning. It'd be like, no, stop, you guys. This is what I heard. This is what I know. There's a person here and, and we need to delight them. Just to play devil's advocate there. So why would an engineer in that case not say, well, I can do this myself. Why do I need a UX person? I, I can just interview customers. Oh, well, um, I think everyone should always be basically interviewing customers. You know, I love that. I think it's, wasn't it Starbucks new CEO said he was going to spend uh, time being a barista in stores quite a bit of time, I think 20% maybe. Am I right on this? Um, I didn't hear this story, okay. so I cannot comment. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I think as, as everyone recognizes the importance of empathy and the importance of being closer to your clients and actually getting to hear firsthand, the, to me, I think everybody should be, why not spend a little time in the call center listening in on some calls if you're an engineer and hear what people are calling about? You know, maybe the way your product is designed creates all kinds of installation problems. And if you hear that, you might come away and say, we don't have to build it that way. We yeah. could build it differently. So I, it, like to me, it doesn't replace an expert UX researcher. Yeah. For it, me, it actually builds a, appreciation because it's also hard to interview. So I think a lot of times people come out of that and go, oh, geez, I'm glad this is someone else's job. Mm -hmm. This takes a lot of skill to really pull this out. Yeah. And I totally agree. I mean, that's, that's, there is an art to it, to in, pulling kind of these insights out of people and that needs training. And, and for me, the way we, we try to frame this for engineers is, is exactly the way you do it and where you say, hey, well, customers have no clue about how to build that stuff. That's why you're there. That's your job. But you can talk to them about other stuff that will help you build the right stuff. So it's kind of, you have to sell them or maybe that's a bit, bit, bit of a too, too uh, kind of. Uh, um, maybe that's not right to say like that. But customers will never be as smart as the engineer in terms of solution building. Mm -hmm. Or I, at least I hope that's the case because that that's what engineers are for. So kind of if you if you downplay a little bit the importance of the customer or kind of put the input of the customer at the right point, then engineers are more likely to say, okay, well, let me listen in. And then and then we had, I mean. If you can, you have those beautiful experiences where engineers sit there. They'll, maybe they don't do the interview, but they listen to the interview and suddenly they start drawing. So that was one project I remember re really well. It was just qualitative work, but we, we, well, we had, we made, we just had engineers listening in and they started drawing kind of new designs. And that for me was like, okay, something's happening. So that's, yes. <laughs> that's already good. Right. I love how you frame that to them of, their role in if you want to delight customers in new ways or ways they've never anticipated yeah and then the full power of what an engineer can do comes into play but if, yes. if only in this track of you're going to build this then we miss out on like years ago we did a, a session and somebody um drew on a post-it note an idea and they said it was a sexy sneaker that was their idea right and so in the past, we would have had the customers go to dinner and have a nice time. And we would have built out ideas. They would have come in the mm -hmm. next morning to this glorious presentation of, of these ideas. So we said, no, no, no. Tell me more about what that is. And they said, well, I envision it as a wedge heeled sneaker. That's a collaboration with Nicki Minaj. Okay. <laughs> okay. Like, 
that was in your imagination. It wasn't going to come out of mine. So, yeah. you know, and, and maybe an engineer would be like, well, there's another way to do that. Like you could do it this way. You could actually make it where the heel goes up or down. It's adjustable. Like, you know, then everyone's seeing how it can be. Yes. And. Hmm. Hmm. You ever find that the empathy, well, empathy can be really powerful that it can almost be too much. So let me give you, tell me, let me say a little bit about what I mean. The, um, well, so years ago we um, was doing a project in a tractor space and we, we, we showed a video of a customer having a difficult time removing a backhoe off the back of the tractor. Okay. Now it was, so this is for people that couldn't be there. We showed the video. It was so powerful. By the end of that, everybody was convinced. Now, we could have showed them anything. We could have picked any random thing. The the but they felt the empathy. It was so powerful. It was so motivating. But it's like, but that power wielded in the hands of somebody. We could have showed them anything that somebody struggling with that that was not necessarily representative. And so, um, I'm, I'm thinking about that. You're talking about you know sitting in the sitting in on the cut on the calls coming in. You know. Uh, how do you manage that or how, how concerned are you about somebody latching on to this? And by the way, they're probably going to latch onto the idea that they sort of, that's already in their confirmation bias, the thing they already wanted to do anyway. Customer says 10 things, they latch onto the one thing they're interested in. How, how do you deal with that? I think there's strength in numbers. Yeah. <laughs> you know, one person can, can fall in love with the one thing that they really want. But if you've got a whole team of ears listening and, and then you run your debrief, you know, then I think you can pull out like, so what was behind the reason why they wanted this? I guess it was the rear part of the tack tractor you could take off. Was that yeah. that situation? Yeah. What was really behind that? You know, if you go seven wise deep, is it like, because you can't hire people that have ag experience anymore. So it's somebody that, you know, two weeks ago was flipping burgers at McDonald's and they don't know what they're doing. So that's why. And then if that's the problem, then the bigger thing might be, they don't know the crop patterns or they don't know, you know, or there's huge loss of time for any kind of mechanical issue. Like, I think to me, that's another way to approach it is like, take that and dig deeper and build it up into like, what's the bigger problem. And yeah, that's a piece of it, but what you might wind up is something more powerful. Like we now have people instead of third generation farmers running you know, planters. Now we have someone with zero ag experience who's not mechanically inclined. And so we have a new set of needs. Mm. I, I had actually a question that um, I think goes in a similar direction. Um, and but maybe it takes us back a bit to the, the original conversation on, on empathy and, and what that is. Uh, but I think just generally my question is, okay, what does it mean to empathize on a large scale? And maybe a different way to, to ask that question is a bit of a weird uh, way of asking it, but um, do, you, do you believe a, a psychopath could uh, empathize in the business uh, context? Wow. <laughs> that would be a question I have actually never contemplated. Um are there limits to people's ability to empathize? I think in right? the business context, because I mean, I, I have a fairly good grasp, I think on 
in my personal experience, what it means to be empathetic. Uh, it's got something to do with resonating with someone else's feeling. Uh, you know, someone feels sad, you you feel sad with them somehow, something like this. Um, or you at least, you know, feel bad about the situation. It makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, so, so I have these kind of vague notions of what it might mean but i'm i'm wondering if you're if you're doing this on a large scale because um i think it alludes to what scott was talking about uh you know you might have some kind of selection bias that you 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 will um empathize on a certain uh specific point on a specific of someone the specifics of a specific person but um you're dealing with a market so are these two things the same thing so, well, I I kind of think what we're going for is compassion in a way. You know, empathy is is beyond sympathy. Sympathy is like, I'm so sorry that you're experiencing this. And empathy is, I feel what you feel. And I may not have the solution for you. It just may be like, I've never experienced what you're going through. I can't imagine what this is like, but I want you to know that I'm right here if I can be of any aid to you that could be empathy. And I haven't had your experience. I can't claim to know what it feels like. And to me, then compassion is, you know, and in what ways could I help? Can I, can I bring a meal over? Can I offer a ride to someone? Can I take your kids for three days while you deal with this? Like, so I think we're striving for empathy in action and, and in a less grand way, as an example, um, a fast food company, had a case where a couple was traveling across state and stopped for lunch and forgot her purse and realized when they got home two hours later that her purse was there. And when they called the store manager, they got a very unempathetic response. And it was, I really can't do anything about it. I don't have the authority to pay for FedEx. So you'll just need to drive over and get it. So the husband, of course, wanting to be the hero for his wife was sort of in a you know, didn't not wanting to go back and tell her, like, get in the car, honey, we got a four hour, <laughs> you know, trip. And in this, the if you think about putting empathy into action, if I had my ac- empathy activated and realized I'm not just in the business of a hot burger, I'm in the business of a great experience. And that means I need to solve things beyond your burger was cold or not what you ordered. And so what if I instead said, oh my God, she must be freaking out. I would be freaking out if I didn't have my purse. Let her know it's locked safely in my office. I'm not going to be able to pay for the FedEx. But what I do do is I include a note and a $20 gift card. And when the purse comes back, it says, sorry, you had such a bad experience. Please go do a redo at your local store, courtesy of us. And so I've both used the language of empathy and my available freedoms to take what was a friction-filled experience and turn it into something where somebody might be like, can you believe what happened? Like we we left this, we left this purse and this is the response. Like this was amazing. And so I think those are the opportunities. But people, if we leave it to each individual person to figure out how to turn friction into something fabulous on their own then we get some people, we get a bell curve and some people that are naturally fantastic at it and others that are terrible and some that are in the middle. But what if we could shift the curve to the right? You know, what if we could help 
the people in the middle be inspired and learn from the people over to the right, you know, who are doing it well? What if we could pull along some of the people on the left who just maybe haven't had the opportunity or maybe their empathy tank is dry and maybe they need some empathy themselves. Look at what healthcare workers have been through the last three years. Don't they maybe need some refresh themselves? Yeah, I, I guarantee you that's true. Uh, um, there's there's one aspect I kind of when we're getting slow into the end here, I want to want to emphasize again or kind of pick on. I think it's like like a like a red thread that that went went through all of it, but we haven't really touched upon it. And maybe helping also in that moving that needle or the the bell curve to the right was the element of fun. So somehow it seems like that. It seems to be very important that in all these aspects of your work, there's fun involved. Like, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Why, why does that even work so well that that kind of that transpires? Well, who does anybody here not want to have fun? (laughs) (laughs) I show of hands. (laughs) I'm against fun. Like just, I'm against fun. I don't want to have fun. I'm the grumpy cat. (laughs) I had fun once. It was terrible. (laughs) Um, actually one of the programs that we do to kind of flip the script a little is, is called engage to give. And when we switched to online, I thought, how are we going to keep people having fun and engaged? Yeah. And so we said, okay, we're going to offer this thing that we made up called engagement rewards. And I said, every time you participate, every time you ask a question, you engage, I'm going to award points. And at the end, I turned those points into a donation to the charity of their choice. And and along the way, it evolved where we said was we want everybody to be human. We want to we're all fate. We're squares, you know, we're the Jeopardy game on on Zoom for hours with each other. So let's show up as humans. So if if the UPS guy comes to your door and your dogs go crazy, we throw in more points. If your cat (laughs) jumps up and walks across. We throw in more points. And so now we have people, they go get their animals and they bring them for more points. Cats are showing up. Dogs are showing up. We had a guy take us on his phone out to his paddock and show us his horses. And then a couple sessions ago, it just happened that two of the guys had guitars on their wall. Mm. And at the end, they got their guitars down and they just started a jam session. And we said points for, <laughs> for the jam session. And so... I, you know, it softens the beachhead, right? Mm. You like to do the things and you positively associate emotions with things you learned when they were fun. Yeah. I learned that burning my finger on a hot griddle doesn't feel good. And I now have a negative emotion (laughs) associated with that um, versus I had a lot of fun doing something and it, didn't feel scary anymore when I asked a question or said, I guys, I'm having a very human moment here. I'm just completely lost. And can somebody mm-hmm. help me out? And everybody goes, yeah, great. Sure. We can help. And in fact, you were so human. We just got five more points towards yeah. our charity total. Yeah. I think this resonates also with what we were talking about previously regarding um, how you identify what you want to work on and scott was talking about this uh impact uh, plot where there's a oh, but i want to work on on that you know that's the <laughs> that's the thing i think is fun and uh, i actually also have a personal story around there uh, around that topic which is i was doing a 
like a, a startup project with a, a, a like just exploratory with an engineer type person. <clears throat> and this exact thing happened to me. I I looked at all the the needs. I, I went to talk to some people, tried to to get some information, and uh, this uh, person said, "But uh, that's boring. I want to work on this," you know, and. I have to say, I thought, but how? So how can we re, uh, re, reconcile, let's say, the, the the more UX or or product management type of 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 vision, which is regarding uh, the customers and their problems and understanding and empathy towards the customers and the fun that engineers can can find? Is what happens if you have a project where? You know, all the data uh, goes towards this direction, which is not fun for the engineer, and the engineer wants to do something else. How do you get people to find the fun in 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 that? Wow! So it sounds like you. This is a situation you guys are facing. Is this? It, a it's happened situation? to me, in, not right now, but it's. It, this is definitely something that's happened to me in the past. Yeah. And how did you handle it? Well, the project stopped. So basically, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> the project stopped because it wasn't aligned with what they wanted to work on? Well, basically, yes. I mean, I actually had right. to then go and I insisted that we go and talk to an external consultant and, and book uh, just a few hours to, to get someone else's opinion on this. And following that, basically, the this other person who was a very talented engineer, he, he just it took out all the fun for him. In the project, and he did not want to really keep going work on. I don't know what the excuse was at the time, but it was something. Oh, but I don't know. I have a lot of work right now. You know, um, I don't really have time, and and it just you know just kind of petered out. Did you ask him why it would be unfun for him? I didn't really dig all that much. I have to say, I I, I don't have. I didn't then go and do a post mortem or anything. It was not a, a long run project. It was not something we had invested a lot of time in, but still enough to actually, you know, do some research and and as I mentioned, get an external person to also give his his feedback, etc. Um, but I, no, I I I didn't really go and dig into his uh, psychology. Maybe he just didn't have time. It's possible also. But my feeling was that he thought this was not not fun anymore, kind of. You know, he wanted to do as He had a whole idea of, the, you know, the technology he wanted to use, et cetera. And, and it was a bit of a downer to hear that, uh, but that's maybe not so useful, you know, and you'd okay. rather work on this. Yeah. Well, I, I think sometimes you find bigger problems for clients to solve than what they were aware of. And so understanding why the engineer didn't want to work on that could have been very revealing for your client to go back in and say, you guys need a lot of solutions with old technology, but your engineers really are tired and bored of working with old technology. They want to use new technology and you don't necessarily have to solve it right there in the moment. But if that's a bigger issue that this company faces that goes beyond one engineer. And it turns out that all the engineers are, are bored and feel uninspired and that they're not getting to play with new tech and do new interesting things. Then maybe you just bubbled up a an even more important problem for the company, you know, to address and figure out and solve. Yeah. That's, that's a good, good, I, good point to, to, so, I mean, that's probably all 
very often the case. Um, we, I think very often we're dealing with symptoms, not with the actual problems behind it. And that, and yeah, sometimes you don't get there and then, and then it stops. So, <laughs> well, Gretchen, just a hey, thank you for your time. Like, where can people learn learn more about about this, about your approach, about you? Where should where should we kind of point them to? Sure, uh, two different places. One is the um, dtlivelab.com, our website, mm-hmm. um, and the other is they could follow me at Fast Company Executive Board, where I'm writing about empathy and how to put it into action and spilling the tea on the things that we've learned that others can adopt. And I can send you that link or you could just Google Fast Company and Gretchen Goff and it should come up. It does. Okay. <laughs> okay, very good. Perfect. <laughs> well, maybe as, as a last question. So you, you mentioned that how important it is to get kind of buying from everybody or at least just getting these 5%. So if I give you a new client, I give you 5% of, of, of the employees. You can even pick them from wherever you want. You can show them one movie. What do they need to watch? Oh, like literally <laughs> show them a movie. Yeah. You can make them uh, sit down for two hours and watch a movie. Like what, what should they do? Or three hours or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Um, That's usually the most difficult question on the whole podcast. <laughs> so... I wouldn't know. I have to tell you what's been top of mind for me is what I'm going to go with. And it's been top of mind for me um, because of some work with a client around what's the difference between market research and design thinking. Mm -hmm. And have you guys ever seen the movie 50 first dates? I kind of stumbled that 50 first dates. Yes. Okay. 50 first. 50 first dates. Ah, okay. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen it, but I think the the name rings a bell. Okay. It's um, Drew Barrymore and Adam Sandler. And oh, that's a good, yeah. good combo, right? He meets this lovely woman. They have a fantastic first date. And then when he goes to see her the second time, um, she has no recollection of who he is or their date. Okay. And he's fallen in love with her. So he needs to figure out how to win her when she doesn't remember mm-hmm. anything about him or the first date. And so to me, 50 first dates shows the importance of how deep you get to know someone and an ongoing relationship versus to me, I mean, the genesis of it was sort of market research is a lot like a first date. You spend a lot of time on the basics, but you don't really get into a deeper, more trusting relationship that you do. And I think in design thinking, when you use empathy and you really connect and you go seven questions into why, and you really pull and intuit what those problems are, then you can come back and delight people in ways, you know, with things they might not have even realized they wanted, but based on your, and isn't that like a beautiful gift to bring back to someone is I know you so well that I heard this and I made this for you. That's a great that's choice. An excellent choice. And even a great story around it. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, it's such a hard question. This it's I, I really would, question. I would what, not know what to answer. I don't think. What, uh, what have some of the other answers been? Well, some kind of kind of uh, pivoted and then said they would should kind of read something from a book. There was a couple of good answers, but I, I now I'm on the top of my head. I don't I don't I don't remember. I think Animal can you remember House. Scott Minbassadors? Minbassador, I think had a had a great great answer, but I don't. I know it was great, but I don't remember it right now. <laughs> Didn't Min say Sorry. something like they he would do a movie with them or something? Like that? Like, yeah, how can we? He would do a movie about how to create a movie together, something like that. It, it, yeah. 
but we did have some some really nice answers but i'm also now blanking slightly on uh yeah. on which ones but there were some some good answers to that yeah, yeah. that's a, i love that answer that's a great one i'd, I'd actually co-create a movie with them yeah, yeah. someone it's, not it's, afraid to think outside the bounds of the question <laughs> yeah. exactly yeah. exactly yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I did miss a big thing. When you asked me how can people find out more about sure. us, and, um, they can also follow us, follow me on LinkedIn. Yeah, yes, yeah. I think we'll put it in the in a in, in the description and we put a yeah. link in there. Uh, I absolutely recommend it. There you will see uh, some screenshots of cats and dogs. So that's my has at least been my experience in the past. So if not for that, if it's not for anything else, then for that, it's really <laughs> so follow Gretchen on LinkedIn. Um, and well, and that concludes today's Product Quest podcast. So please send any comments or ideas for future shows to productquestpodcast at gmail.com. Gretchen, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, well, to the listeners, see you next time. Well, hey, you guys have a great evening. I think it's evening over there. Yes. So, yeah. Yeah. You have a great day. Okay. Thanks a lot. Right. Thank Thanks you. Bye, Gretchen. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.